When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights, created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Oristano. I played Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I played Billy Riggins. Our assumption is, as always, that you, our listeners, have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, go watch Friday Night Lights, which is currently streaming on Netflix and Peacock TV, because there will be spoilers in our podcast. And, guys, check Check out our merch. That's right, baby. Please go check out our merchandise at our brand new website designed by Eleanor Carez, who is at Eleanor Carez on Instagram. Our website is www.cleareyesfullheartspod.com. Once again, that's cleareyesfullheartspod.com. And we still want to answer your questions. Email us anything you've been dying to know at cleareyesfullheartspod at gmail.com today. We are talking about season one, episode 20, Mud Bowl. It was written by Elizabeth Heldens and David Hudgens and directed by David Boyd. And here we go with the NBC synopsis. When an unexpected event jeopardizes the Panthers' home field advantage, Coach Taylor takes it upon himself to find a new field while reminding his players of their love for the game. And we have an amazing guest with us today, the ridiculously talented executive producer of the show, David Hudgens, who also co-wrote this episode. So let's get into the highlights and then we'll talk with David. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, top of the show. I'm sorry, wait, what? Who? Who's, whose name was that that they said on the radio? Oh my gosh, they said <laughs> voodoo, Stacey. They said voodoo. <laughs> I thought we were done with voodoo, but he's back. Well, not, not yet. <laughs> he will be back. I'm just fully going to admit that I'm a dummy and I'll probably get some flack for this. I fully do not understand the money in the locker. Is it a bribe? Is it a gift? Like, are they being paid to... Th- throw a game? That's actually a really, really good question because it is a little confusing. This isn't a bribe, but these are gifts for good performance. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that Buddy is the one that's giving these gifts, especially given the way he reacts when coach confronts him about it. High school athletes, they're amateurs, and therefore they aren't allowed to take compensation for any on-the-field performance. It's against the rules in every state in the country, basically. So as a piece of story, it's being used to show that the purity of the game of football the coach loves is basically being tainted with all this crap with, with boosters and sponsorships and advertisements and press boxes and commercialism and payouts. And coach is just basically wanting to get back to the basics. That's why he approaches his players 
and why he has this conversation with Buddy. And it's going to lead to where we go later in this episode, basically. It's just kind of a precursor of everything that happens and why Coach just wants to get back to the basics and get back to just playing football, the love of the game. That makes more sense. I don't, in my distorted head, because I watched too many old school gambler movies, I <laughs> thought that they were getting paid to throw the game. And I was it, like, that's No, intense. it's a good question, because I'll be honest with you. Like, when I watched it the first time, I was like, I don't really... Like, in college, they do that a lot. Like, there's a lot of stuff where... Because the NCAA is constantly cracking down on it. I don't know that I've ever heard of it in high school, but Uh these bigger schools. Now, now I went to a high school that recruited kids, literally recruited kids from across the country to come play baseball at this high school. And they gave them scholarships and they paid them basically to be at this school. It happens. Okay, there's a tiny tiny moment where coach Taylor is talking to the coach of the other team and he like pulls a piece of lint off of his shirt. Do you remember yeah, what I'm talking about? I do. I, I, I noticed it the first time. I, I noticed it every time because I just think it's such a brilliant little moment it's with coach. It's so good. And they both kind of giggle a little bit. There's something about these two. I meant to look up who played that coach and I forgot. He's so good. I actually looked this up, Stacey. Coach Ganey is played by an actor named Brian Thornton, who also plays a different coach, which I thought was kind of interesting, by the name of Coach Dix in season two, episodes 10. 11. And also, Brian Thornton was a part of the FNL movie as well. Had a, a small part in that. There's something about the two of them together that's like a super friendly competition, but still competitive. I don't know. They always have like little smirks when they're talking to each other. I found it highly enjoyable. I just kind of imagine that when they were both coming up, they were probably assistants together on the same team. And now they're both head coaches for separate high schools. And there's like a, a this this built-in kind of competition. It's a friendly competition. I mean, they like beating the crap out of each other. Yeah, but I also think they genuinely enjoy each other too, yeah. which is so, it's not like n- nobody told us that. That's just the history that I'm getting from the two of them playing with yeah. each other, which is like magnanimous. I'll actually. bet you money though that Kyle Chandler probably said to this guy beforehand, what do you think? You think we know each other? Because that's how Kyle works. Absolutely. I don't know what the conversation was. I can't 100% tell you, but having worked with Kyle, I can imagine that Kyle probably said, you think we work together? You think maybe we know each other in the past? And I guarantee you that they had some kind of conversation like that because there's a familiarity between these two that just kind of jumps off the page. I love it. Yeah. They enjoy each other and I enjoy watching it. Okay, so Smash telling Lila about Waverly's bipolar made me so uncomfortable. I don't think that's Smash's story to tell. I have to agree with you here. It's like a lot of things on this show. I think he's coming from a good place. I think he means well, but I don't think you can be telling people this. Now, by that same rationale, I think he trusts Lila. Yeah, not a good look. Uncomfortable. I will fully admit when I was watching this, I was a little hormonal. Information that Derek wants to know. (laughs) All of our listeners need to know this. Hi guys, welcome (laughs) to me. When Landry said that he started a math club and nobody came, it made me incredibly sad. Yeah, poor Landry. But he's doing pretty well right now on his uh, little woo of Tyra. Maybe she'll join his math club. She seems to want to. And I guess they make a date for Friday. Landry says yes to a date on Friday. That's the Lord's Day. (laughs) In Dillon, Texas? Yes, 100%. Although Tyra doesn't seem to care about Dillon football at all. So this is probably a great time. Yeah, exactly. So this is a great time for Landry to make his moves. He's not going to be interfered with by any other Dylan Panthers or, or anybody else. There's this scene with Kyle and Connie in the field that I guess coach wants to have the game on and those cows in the background and one of them gets a little too close to Connie and she starts giggling. It was the most adorable moment I've seen on the show so far. It really is. It's a beautiful scene. It reminds me once again, I know I'm beating you guys over the head with this idea, but the, the idea of Texas as the 12th man. We're going to have David Hudgens on a little bit later, and we're going to talk specifically about that scene because I, I just have always loved that scene. 
But that is definitely a scene. You're not going to be able to get that shot in Los Angeles. It's just not happening. I feel like I'm like an honest dummy in this episode. <laughs> Coach is going to go get blankets. Does that mean that they're, they're going to like do things? Stacy, this show is a PG show. Maybe they're going to lay down and watch the sunset. You know, your brain doesn't have to go to that place. But it's in a field of cows. But they're going to watch the sunset. It doesn't mean that they're going to, you know. Oh, okay. Although this may be the place where Gracie Bell came from. Spoiler alert. I need you to do a timeline of events and see if that's true. <laughs> we might in have to. In all of your to. free time. We might have to. And moving on. I just finally have to say, yes, street, thank God. Let it out. Start yelling. You're like, his bubble burst with Lila in that moment and all of the things came pouring out. Yeah. I mean, as a person who blows his top often, that being myself, uh, <laughs> it was very cathartic to see Jason go to that place. He's too nice. Like, so that's how I'm feeling. Nice. It's like, dude, you got all this anger built up inside of you and you got to let it go. Kitch used to, every time we'd have a scene together, Billy's always losing his mind and he's like, dude, you get angry about everything. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's just a little Derek Phillips got my throat. Yeah, a little bit. I, in my life, have dealt with quite a bit of bipolar issues with people that I love. And this scene with Smash and Waverly, I feel so hard for Smash here. It's debilitating to go through issues like depression and bipolar on your own. It is also incredibly hard for the person who's the caretaker of that person. As I've said before, I believe on this on this show, I've dated women that are bipolar and it's it's very difficult. It makes me feel for Smash in this scene, especially when a person has decided to go off their meds. It can be really, really difficult for the person who cares about them and the person who loves them because it's a whirlwind and that person's life at that point becomes out of control. And he's just a kid still. They're yeah. just kids. I have to say, Billy the soothsayer sees into the future, tells Tim it's going to go bad by state. There's like a definitive time period here. I think Billy has a line where he says, I don't have a PhD in stupid like you do, which I think <laughs> is one of Billy's most brilliant lines. But yeah, we'll see if Billy's correct. Billy so far has a has a penchant for being correct. Stacey, have you noticed this? Yeah, I am. Huh? Huh? Maybe Billy is the soothsayer of Dylan, Texas. The Oracle of Dylan. Oh, Billy. This pregame montage here is so good. And I remember you talking about it a little while back. And I don't remember what it is. Yeah, I'll tell you what it is. This is one of the things that makes FNL feel so natural to me is moments like this. Like before the start of the game, there was just a quick sequence of cuts. And one of the shots is Billy talking to Tim and I'm smiling. Taylor and I were having a conversation here and had absolutely no clue that there were cameras rolling on us. And a lot of the actors in this little montage. We had no clue that they were shooting us at this point in time. If I remember correctly, I had one of his football gloves and I was trying it on and we were having a conversation about it. And they caught this moment. And it was just the two of us smiling and kind of laughing. This is just two actors talking between takes. And as I said, they they rolled camera and they just caught some really authentic and beautiful moments. And not just of me, but I mean, of all these other mm-hmm. actors that were on set that day. I mean, the camera guys and our directors could be really, really sneaky on these episodes. But they found these kind of really authentic, kinesthetic responses. No forced moments because you can't be forced if you don't know you're being recorded. It's also just smart on the production side to get some B-roll without like having to waste time on getting B-roll. Exactly. They were probably setting up for like the football scenes. Okay, this whole game, watching the kids slide back and forth in the mud. Do you know those videos that are on YouTube where they just set up a camera and you just watch people slip on the same patch of ice for a very long time? Videos. I lived in New York. I used to sometimes, I'd be outside smoking a cigarette back when I used to smoke cigarettes and I'd sit there and you'd see an ice patch and watch one person fall and then you'd have to watch five people fall. I would never let an old person fall, but I, you know, so 
funny. A young person? Yeah, I'll let him slip a little bit back in the day. I love it so much. That's what this whole game reminded me of, which also, here was my random thought watching this game. How the heck did they get goalposts put up? Stacy, they went to a hardware store. They and bought <laughs> hardware supplies and they dug a hole. Come on. But, and then all the guys just get together and put it up like Iwo Jima style into the ground. Why Iwo Jima? There's the guys holding the flag together. Oh, Goalposts are very heavy. That was the image that came to my mind. I was like questioning team. what that was. But yes, I, I get what you're saying. Yes, Iwo Jima. Yes, that's exactly how it went down. I'm so confused by <laughs> it. And know. then they also, they did the chalk outline. I don't trust the Dylan Panthers with math to make that field exactly what it's supposed to be. They have a person who does the chalk outline already. Somebody maintains Dylan's field. I don't know. We probably never met the groundskeeper at, at Dylan, but that doesn't mean they don't exist, Stacey. Come on. You know, you need to open your horizons a little bit, Stacey. I'm mostly just procrastinating because I don't want to talk about the next scene because I hate watching it. I hate yeah. it. I hate it so much. Watching Tyra get assaulted by that guy. I don't even have words for Like, I don't even know what to say about it. I'm in the same boat. I hate watching this scene as well. I hate watching it because I do have a difficult time sometimes separating Tyra from Annie. Exactly. And so it's really hard for me to watch that scene as a friend of Annie's. But it's also really hard for me to watch that scene because I love Tyra. This whole sequence, though, if I can step outside of it, is beautifully structured. We're going to talk about this scene in far more detail after the break with our writer and executive producer, David Hudgens. So please stick around. everyone. We're back with the amazingly talented David Hudgens. David is known outside of the TV show Friday Night Lights as a co-producer on the film version of Friday Night Lights. David was a co-producer and writer on the WB's Everwood, creator of and showrunner of Past Life for Fox, writer and co-executive producer of the hit TV show Parenthood on NBC, creator, executive producer, and showrunner of Game of Silence on NBC, executive producer and writer for Shut Eye on Hulu, and is currently the executive producer and showrunner of FBI Most Wanted on CBS. David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Now, I know you went to school at Duke University. I also know this because I was forced to sit through the Final Four with you in Atlanta <laughs> back in 2014 when we were working on Game of Silence together. But you also graduated from SMU's Dedman School of Law and actually practiced law for, what was it, six or seven years? Seven, seven and a half. You were in Dallas, right? Correct. Okay. So let me ask you this question. How did you transition from, from being a lawyer to becoming a writer? Very gingerly. Uh, <laughs> I, I, had, I had been practicing law for seven or eight years. I'd always wanted to write movies and write television. Around the time, about seven years in, in the law practice, I had an older sister who got sick. She had breast cancer, and I was visiting her in New York. She was getting chemo one day, and I was complaining about the law. And she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to write movies and television. And she looked at me, and she said, well, then do it. What are you waiting for? Life is too short. And as corny as that sounds, it inspired me. And I decided I am going to try it. I quit the law. I moved to a small cabin in the mountains of Tennessee. And I just started writing. And I, and I spent about two years. I wrote a feature script that got optioned. And I took that as a good sign. It said, if I'm going to do this, I got to get serious and go to Hollywood. So we moved to Los Angeles, my wife and two children and very sketchy cat. And... Uh, <laughs> 
I ended up uh, out here, wrote a couple of spec scripts. I met an agent outside of Bouncy House at a kid's birthday party. Oh, my God. He read, he read my scripts. He liked them. And he said, I'm going to see if I can get you a job. And he did. And I got hired on Everwood on April Fool's Day. I thought I was being punked, but it was true. And I got a job in TV. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Is it true that the spec scripts that you had were for Six Feet Under and for West Wing? Correct. Yes. See, we do a little homework on this that's show, some good. That's some good research right there, Derek. Can I ever possibly read your spec script for West Wing? It's my favorite show in the entire world. Of course. You know, it's <laughs> one, probably the only one I ever kept. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so excited. I love that show. I, I was I was in love with that show. And I always tell writers who ask me for advice, I say, when you're going to write your spec script, Make sure you pick a show that you like and that you know because your passion will come through. And 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 I just, you know, I mean, you know, Aaron Sorkin, of course. Why not try and imitate the best? Yeah. Oh God, I'm very excited about this. Go on with the questions, D. How did you become a writer on Friday Night Lights? Like, how did this whole entire thing happen for you? That's a great question. And there's a story there. So I was coming off of Everwood and the show had had ended its run. And I went out for staffing meetings, which is what writers do in Hollywood. You go and you meet with the various showrunners of the various shows you're interested in. And I had actually taken a job on another show called Men in Trees. And my agent said, you need to go see Friday Night Lights. You, you need to, to meet with Jason Kadams. And look, I'm from Dallas. I'm from Texas. I had grown up in the world that is depicted in that show. I'd actually been to Odessa. I'd seen Permian play football. My attitude was sort of, "Ah, I've been there, done that. That doesn't feel like a stretch for me, but my agent kept insisting. So finally, I went and saw the pilot. I think I drove over to the Universal lot. They put me in a room and they screened it for me. And as soon as I saw the ending, I was like, there's no way I'm not going to do this show. That ending, when Streets Paralyzed, just really got me. I mean, the whole pilot got me, but that in particular. And then when I found out what had really happened with it, it was an absolute done deal. Do you guys know that story about what Pete did? I don't think so. I'm not sure. So the original version of the script of the pilot script did not include Street getting paralyzed. What happened was Pete was down in Austin shooting the pilot, doing research, and he went to a football game between Austin Westlake and San Antonio Madison. And at that game, a safety for Austin Westlake by the name of David Edwards made a hit on a receiver named Koyon and got paralyzed. They stopped the game. Pete was there. It's almost eerily reconstructed scene by scene in the pilot. The kid was taken off the field. The team, fin- you know, they finished the game. Austin Westlake ended up, ended up winning, but David was paralyzed and Pete became friends with him and the family. And Pete was so moved by it that he changed the ending of the pilot and he paralyzed the star quarterback of the Dillon Panthers. And I just thought that was such a different, courageous, brave act of storytelling. By the way, I did go for meetings. I met with Jason Kadams, the showrunner of the show, meeting Jason for the first time, but we sat in a room and I immediately loved him. Everybody who meets him does. And he was very upfront and candid and said, look, I'm from New York. I don't know a lot about football, but I don't think this show is really about football. And we just talked for a long time and I got the offer and I took the job. That brings me to my next question. So you've got the job. You're now part of this writer's room. You're a producer on the show and you have a very broad 
broad, I almost want to say two-dimensional outline of, of who your main characters are and what the story is based on the pilot. So take me through what happens next, because I'm not a writer. Where the hell do you start? Where do the writers go from there? Can you take us through the process of, of creating the story in the writer's room and where you guys go? I mean, how do you break story on this show? Well, the way it works is you put a bunch of writers in a room and everybody pitches ideas, and then you come up with the individual episodes and the individual stories for the characters, and you write them. But for this show, it was different. And one of the things I loved about it, at the beginning of every season, we'd get together, and the first question was always, all right, what's going to happen with the team this year? Are we going to win state? Are going to lose state? Are going to have a bad season? We would arc out over the course of the entire season what the football season would be. So that took care of the football and the larger arc. And then we would break it down character by character. You know, we'd always say, all right, Coach and Tammy, what's their story this year? What are they going to be doing? Then we'd go to Riggins and we'd go to all the characters and individually arc out over the course of the season in very broad strokes what we thought the stories were, what we thought the themes were, what kind of changes we wanted to have happen to the characters on a very broad sense. That usually took us a couple of weeks And then we would just dive in, man. We'd say, all right, episode one, what are we going to do? For example, in season one, the big pending question was obviously Street was paralyzed. So the story that seemed pretty obvious to everybody was, is Matt Saracen ready? And that's where Eyes Wide Shut came from. The whole second episode, the first episode after the pilot was about Saracen. And so that's generally how the process worked. And a lot of people think that writers write one specific character or one specific story. That's not how it works. We all break the stories, which is fancy word for making up. (laughs) We pick up the stories as a group together in the room. And then once we have the outline for the episode, an individual writer on the staff is assigned to go off and write that episode. They do that. And then it gets shot and produced and edited and put on the air. Craziness. So here's a question as an actor. Friday Night Lights was kind of rare as a TV show because all the actors have said, and we've been kind of open about this, that we had the freedom to improv. Uh, I've also made it very clear on this show that the actors were never, we never changed actual story uh, with our improvs. I just want to make that very clear. But we did add and sometimes take away specific lines from scenes. That being said, which actor annoyed you the most and why? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that. (laughs) But seriously, though, was it Stacy? (laughs) No, you both were lovely and talented at all times. It all started with Peter Berg, who wrote the pilot and directed the pilot. And Pete is very freeing as a director. He likes improv. A lot of times he won't cut. He'll just keep rolling. He'll say, keep going, keep going. Try this, try this. There's a great moment in the pilot where Mac Brown, who was then the coach at the University of Texas, shows up at the big pep rally before the game. And Pete just put him in the scene with people. And he's like, well, what am I supposed to do? And Pete said, just talk to him like you would talk to anybody. Talk to him like you would talk to a high school coach. Go, go, go. And he would talk. He would talk. And Pete would say, keep going. Say this. Try this. So the improvisational nature of the show started from the beginning. I will say that certain actors were better at it than others. (laughs) Yes, it's true. It's definitely true. And so you sort of learn that as a writer and as a producer, you know, who, who you can sort of give some leeway to that will improve the material and not take it off the rails. A lot of the improv that was done on this show, I felt like was trimming. Not the famous story, but sort of the story was you'd give Kyle a quarter page speech and he'd say, oh, I'll play it in a look. 
And sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't. But we always, my feeling about it was, especially towards the end when, when I was running the show, helping run the show was, as long as the intent of the scene is there and they're not changing the story, we're okay with it. There were certain story points you always had to have. There were certain lines that we loved. Oh, you got to try this, but I don't think it's funny. It's funny. Just do it. (laughs) And so, but the improvisational nature of the show is I think what makes it feel so authentic. Is that something you and Kadams talked about at your initial meeting that that was going to be part of the writing process? Well, not specifically at the initial meeting, but I do remember when we first gathered in the room, the idea was we don't want to throw away what makes this show great and what makes it great is the natural feel of it. I mean, if you look at those episodes and and my boys have been watching it on Netflix lately, I'll walk through and I'll see an episode. I mean, so much of it, the atmosphere, the background, I mean, the background actors we used were real. They were from Texas. We were shooting in Austin and it just felt authentic at all times. And we never really had a stage on this show. As you know, our stage was basically the home field and the field house that's real. And still sits there today. I was in Austin two weeks ago for a wedding. I drove right by it. Yeah. So it was authenticity. And I think the improv nature of the show lent itself to that. And quite honestly, the way the show was shot, being with lots of handheld cameras, Mm -hmm. made that easier. You weren't always worried about hitting a mark and a camera move, et cetera, et cetera. It was like, get in there and play the scene. We'll find it on camera. There were sometimes later in like season four, season five, and some of my lines would be really terrible curse words. And I'd be like, okay, I get what you want me to do here. Like, I understand where we're going here. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, that that was something that we would look at in the editing room a lot. Here's an example from Mud Bowl. If you remember, there's a scene in that episode where Coach and Tammy go to the field where they're going to play the game. And Coach is getting the idea and he's standing there with Connie. I was there on the day. We waited till magic hour to shoot it. The sun was setting, this gorgeous Texas landscape. And there were a bunch of cows in the field and the locations of production were very concerned. And we were like, no, leave them. It's great. So we roll on the scene. We're halfway through the scene. And this black cow comes up to Connie and starts kind of nuzzling her and nuzzling her. And you can see in the moment, she's not scared, but she's definitely taken by surprise. And she lets out this little laugh. And I'm sitting there with David Boyd, who directed the episode. And I'm waiting for him to say cut. And he goes, no, 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 this is great. Keep going, keep going. And so this cow follows Connie around in the scene. And she laughs. And and Kyle picked it right up. And they played the scene. We saw it in the editing room. We're like, leave it. That is great. At the end of the day, it felt like there was no ego from the writers. And hopefully there was an ego from the actors. I'm sure. I'm sure there were some. But it felt like, we could have those happy little accidents happen on set and and no one was going to yell cut. I mean, there were times where it got a little out of control. There was a stray dog that walked into the Riggins house one time. In the oh my God. Scene. Right. And we right. kept going, but then eventually <laughs> they were like, cut. This dog was like humping my leg. It's It was out of control. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we, we would usually kind of embrace those happy little accidents. As a writer, though, do you prefer that or would you prefer the actors just stick to the script? It depends. It depends on who the actor is, what the scene yeah. is about and what the situation is. You know, I always felt like in bigger scenes with group dynamics going on, the sound people hate it when actors talk over each other, but I feel like it's more natural. So in big scenes like that, where if somebody finds a moment or does something funny, that's fine. It's a little bit different if you have an intense dramatic scene between two people where you're really trying to land a moment What's coming to mind is the scenes between Saracen and his mother, played by the amazing Kim Dickens, 
Yeah. Those scenes, they were always on book, which means they were they would say the lines are scripted and they worked just as well. So it, it varied, yeah. you know, it varied from cases. I mean, look, Brad Leland, Buddy Garrity, Brad could throw in a line or two here and there that you would just, you know, you'd fall out laughing and say, holy cow, I wish I thought of that. Hell, you and you and Stacy were both great at it. I mean, you know, one of my favorite scenes is that one where you're working out in the backyard. And I think half that scene was improv, you know, and then we had Mindy in a strip club at times or where ever and whatever made it feel natural um, yeah. as long as you got the point of the scene. So we recently watched and talked about episode seven, Homecoming, which you wrote and which is where we meet Mendy for the first time. And it's the first episode where Billy and Tyra have their own kind of storyline on the show. So how much does Stacey, Annie, and I owe you for that? Uh, I've told David before that I owe him my career. Guys, he invented Mendy. Yeah. You take Discover card. How can I, we... Uh... Look, I tell you what, people may not know this, but in television writing, when you create a character and they appear in an episode... Every episode that they appear in after that, you get a character payment for. So in reality, Stacey, I think, paid for, I can't remember what we used that for. I think we might have bought a bed for our guest bedroom. It's this Stacey bed. bed. (laughs) Yeah, not to get creepy. but uh, I love that. I love that. Look, I I love that character. I remember, I think it was Carrie Aaron in the room who was very intrigued by this idea of the Texas sort of strip club mentality milieu or whatever. It's like, let's try something that we haven't seen. It's like, can we do a stripper on on a, a dancer? Sorry, a dancer on network television. <laughs> like, why not? Let's try it. But it was all grounded ultimately in that family. And then as you know, by the end of the, the series and specifically in season five, I felt like the characters had grown and the audience loved them so much. They're going to have twins, man. Let's do a whole story. Let's fight it off. Thank you and the writer's room for that. Ms. Michael and I were talking about this when we had her on the first episode she's on she comes in she just crushes her scene and i said well that's why they brought you back the writers saw what they had there and they wrote for you and how often did that happen or is that just actors making stuff up in their own head saying oh i was so great in this scene that they decided to bring me back it happens a lot and it happens specifically with liz you never know when somebody who's in there for maybe a one episode or two episode arc is gonna pop and when they do you're just like well hang on Let's let's come up with more story for those people. It's happened to me on other shows besides Friday Night Lights where you see somebody and think to yourself, oh my goodness, that is gold. We got to write towards that. And then there's other situations where you spend a lot of time creating a character and you cast somebody and you cross your fingers and you hope for the best. Most of the times it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. For me, it was season five when we cast Cress Williams as Michael B. Jordan's father. Yeah. The first cut I saw with Cress in it, I was just blown away. And I said, oh, my God, we've got gold here. Yeah. And he ended up being, I think, in most of, of season five because he yeah. was yeah. good. When somebody holds a camera, when somebody can deliver a scene, and when you like them or, or maybe you hate them, either way. I mean, remember, what was his name? Voodoo? Voodoo Tatum? People hated voodoo, but you couldn't look away from it. David, you have no clue that all Stacey does is talk about voodoo. I'm not kidding. He's my favorite character on Friday Night Lights. I will go into depth with you later. I've explained it on the questions episode. I love him so much. Yes. And look what he's gone on to do. 
I mean, all this is ridiculous. Uh, Also, speaking of, we'll get into it a little bit later, but Liz Michael has some things to say about Mud Bowl, too. (laughs) She does. Yeah, she was not a big fan of being stuck in the rain. (laughs) doesn't like the rain. I love Liz so much. I cast her in Past Life. She's in season one of that show. She's just tremendous. I mean, those scenes with her and Smash, you just, again, it's just the authenticity. It felt real. Now, I do want to talk about Mud Bowl because this episode is specifically about Mud Bowl. And I know that this probably isn't the facts, but you weren't the first writer to ever be on set, were you? I don't think so. I can't remember. You're the first (laughs) writer I remember being on set. You're the first writer I remember meeting on set. There is a certain actor who shall go nameless who did not realize he was mic'd up and that the writer might have headphones on. And I heard a few comments about the script and I was like, well, he's going to learn his lesson. Oh no! We weren't there to be police. It just becomes, as the show goes on, I think it gets better and better the more the writers know the actors and crew and vice versa. And you have an understanding of how the process works and what goes into it. There's no substitute for it. And by the way, every time I went to set on this show, number one, it was Austin. So who doesn't want to go to Austin? And I just want to interject real quick and let our audience know that. So the way that our show kind of worked, our writer's room was in L.A., We were shooting in Austin, Texas, so it was very common. It wasn't very common to have writers around on set, which is why I was asking David this, because really and truly, this is the first time I remember there actually being Mm -hmm. a writer on set was when we shot Mud Bowl. So go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, I I mean, look, I love doing it. I love going there, and there's an energy and a vibe when you're on set. And what I was going to say is every time I went to set, and this continued over the next three or four years, you get ideas for stories. You know, somebody will come up to you and say, hey, remember Crowley? He was a ref in real life. And Crowley would bend my ear with stories. And I was, man, that's great. I didn't steal them, Tim. But uh, (laughs) part of it was you were there to produce the episode and to make sure that we were getting coverage of everything that we needed. But look, this crew was so good and so professional. There was never an instance where I felt like we didn't get the story that was scripted. I loved being in Austin. And by the way, the hours were so reasonable on this show. One of my favorite memories was wrapping five o'clock and we'd be on the lake water skiing by 630. Yep. You know, exactly. that was great. There was one time David wrote an episode and I took Becky to a beauty competition and I was sitting in the audience and I was heckling and like uh, other people who had other, and they were like, just, just make everybody else miserable. So I leaned in front of me to the two women sitting in front of me and I called them bitches. And then David came over later and he goes, um, that's my sister. And I was like, I just called your sister. He's <laughs> like, no, True it was True story, which she tells. And they loved it. <laughs> she tells all the time, by the way. It's funny because my sister Anne was what's called a Highland Bell at Highland Park High School, which was a very, very rough inspiration for the rally girls in the show. I remember telling people in the writer's room about it in season one, and they were like, that doesn't happen. That's not real. They don't make Rice Krispie treats and put it in these guys' lockers. I was like, you got to come to Texas thing because this is real. Mm-hmm. But yes, I remember that. They came and they were extras in the audience or they were background in the audience and uh, <laughs> they loved it. It was Stacey and I fun. literally talked about Rally Girls yesterday because coming from Miami, we didn't have Rally Girls for the football team. It, like I went to a baseball high school, but it's just not the same as Texas, man. Texas is its own monster when it comes to these things. Yeah. So the Mud Bowl episode was submitted for Emmy consideration in the first season of the show, if I'm not mistaken. It's also, I mean, just an amazing episode, but the thing that really stands out to me, especially after rewatching it, is the yeah. tension that you and Liz Heldens created between the football game 
and then the attempted assault on Tyra. As an audience, we're, we're literally on the edge of our seats for the last 15 minutes of that episode. Can you talk to our audience about the writing process on those scenes and how you guys came up with that storyline? Yes, I remember it very well. We had a writer on staff by the name of Patrick Bassett, who wrote lots of great episodes. He and his writing partner, John Zinman. Patrick played college football. And Patrick, in addition to being a good writer, is just a great idea guy. And I remember he walked in one day into the writer's room. I had a little thing of cottage cheese. I was eating it. Patrick goes, Sandlot. I said, what? He goes, we need to do an episode about the passion of the game, the joy of the game. And I was like, okay, what are you talking about? He goes, what if they just played a football game in a field? No fans, no blah, blah, blah. I said, we can't do that. What are you talking about? Play a football game in a field. And the more we started talking about it, the more I, the idea started to take. And at one point, Patrick said something along the lines of, it's that feeling when you're a kid and you just grab your friends and you go to the park and play. And so there's a line in Mud Bowl where Coach looks at Tammy and he says, imagine being 10 years old again. And yeah. you just play. You just play football. So that was the idea. He says, close your eyes. And he, he's grabbing exactly. her face. Yeah, exactly. It's a beautiful little moment. That yeah. was the moment. It was, you know, it was channeling Patrick in that moment. So then we had to come up with a reason why, which is where we came up with the explosion. And then we decided, well, if we're going to do this, then what if it rains? And then, oh, yeah. Then what if it turns into gets muddy? Oh, my God, this is going to be fantastic. <laughs> Three weeks later, production is pulling their hair out. You've got to be kidding me. We're going to shoot rain at night in a field in the middle of nowhere. And we did. And yeah. we did. And it, it's one of my favorite moments in the show. It's one of my favorite episodes. Yeah. So the football part, the mud bowl part. And by the way, if you remember, that was the game we had to win semis to get state to face voodoo Tatum. So the stakes were high in the football game itself. But meanwhile, we had this story going along with Landry and Tyra. There was a moment in the room in season one where somebody brought up, well, what if Landry and Tyra had a romance? And people are like, oh, what? That's crazy. No way. No way would she ever fall for him. No way. No way. I said, well, maybe that's the point of the story is that it's so unexpected. Liz is an amazing writer. I'm pretty sure she wrote most of the scenes in Mud Bowl between Landry and Tyra, where he's tutoring her on algebra, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So the chemistry, interesting, again, thinking about what Jesse has gone on to now, the chemistry was there and the fact of opposites attracting was there. And then the tension of the episode that you referenced is obviously she's assaulted at the end. And Liz and I, I remember talking with her about it and we're like, you know, there's a way you could do this where it's football game, then the assault. So, but would it be much more interesting if we're continuously cutting back and forth and building the tension? And that's how the episode ended up getting cut. And then they have that great scene at the end where she breaks down in the Alamo freeze after we've won the game. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it worked. Oh, God, <laughs> it worked. Brilliant. I just yeah. texted Annie this morning after I watched it because the attack is super hard for me to watch. But my God, she's so good in it. And I just have to be like, I love you. You're so good. She is good. And that was a very sensitive and difficult scene to film that we had a lot of meetings about. It was discussed in tone. How do we do this? How do we make it good and also be respectful of the moment and of the actors? And, and I think they pulled it off. Do you want to tell him, Derek, your experience of Mudbull? He's very aware of my experience of Mudbull. <laughs> You so both have we were, told me separate stories of Tarek's experience on Mud Bowl. The, the, uh, yeah, the Rashomon version where we tell three different stories of it. 
My experience of Mud Bowl was number one, just FYI, it was probably 25, 30 degrees that night. Yes, it was uh, very cold. This is my story, David. I get to tell it, then you get to interject. <laughs> I'm confirming you, I'm validating you. It was cold. It was cold. It was very, <laughs> it was very cold, cold and stormy night. It was, yes, it was cold. The, the, the sea was angry that night, my friend. Yeah, so it was freezing, freezing cold. And then we had this water. I, everybody's getting soaking wet. And where I was standing in these stands that they made, the water wasn't hitting me. And I was like, this is spectacular. I'm not getting wet at all. But I made the fatal mistake of telling David and our director, the other David, David Boyd, that I wasn't getting wet in this scene. And so they made me wait. Everyone had wrapped at like two o'clock in the morning, maybe earlier. And I'm stuck around and they're like, we've got one more thing we want to shoot with you, Derek. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Like I've already, I'm done. I have nothing else in this scene. Or in this episode, why are they keeping me around? And so, yeah, two o'clock in the morning, I was out there while all the other actors were home, snuggled up in their warm beds. I was <laughs> sliding across the mud, but I actually had a great time doing it. I did, did like a backflip into the mud that they kept in the episode. When Where's I watch it? it now at 45 years old, I go, how the hell did I do that? Or I guess it was a front flip into the mud. I don't think I've ever been able to do a backflip. But yeah, that was my story. <laughs> well, what I remember <laughs> is... Fairly consistent with what you just said. I do remember we wrapped everybody else. I think we had five cameras that day. We wrapped all cameras, but one. And we're like, why aren't we wrapping that camera? I said, because we got to get Derek out here. What for? <laughs> he will do this. He will love this. It's like, well, what's the setup? What are we doing? Said, Nothing. Just roll camera on Derek and tell him to go nuts. And you did it. And then we got into post and there was a whole separate bin of just Derek in the mud. And we just watch it and go through and we pick and say, okay, that would be good. That would be good. I mean, you got to understand for the people that are listening, we were literally in a big field in the middle of nowhere. And to make it rain on a movie set, on a TV set, you have to bring in these huge rigs and they have big cranes and there's this lattice work of pipes. And we didn't do the whole field. I think we only did 50 yards of it. But that's a lot and it was expensive. And you had these big water trucks and you hit the switch and you turn them on and it just starts raining. And so literally by the end of that day, I mean, do you remember that? It was a mud bowl. It was an absolute muddy, mucky mess. Kyle was sick for a good two and a half weeks after the mud bowl. And I believe, yeah, that the uh, freezing cold temperatures may have. (laughs) Well, yeah, I I will say it's tough. Small anecdote on that. We were shooting at the Cotton Bowl. I was there for that. And he had his big speech to the team before they took the field. We're setting up the shot. We're about ready to go. Bring in first team. Where's Kyle? Where's Kyle? I walk into the bathroom, the Cowboys locker room, and Kyle was green as a ghost, sick as a dog, whatever bad metaphors I can come up with. I mean, literally, I think throwing up and just feverish or whatever. And I was like, oh, man, are you okay?" And he goes, I got this. I got this. He went out and he does that speech. And when you watch it in the cut, it actually informs the performance in a way. I mean, he was just a trooper. He did it. You know, he He didn't go home uh, because he knew what we, you know, what we had going on there. So, yes, he did get sick. And maybe it was because of Mud Bowl, but I would never (laughs) admit to that. I'm not going to say it was specifically, but I think that that might have been. Although that was probably two and a half weeks later, three weeks yeah, later. So maybe it that. wasn't. Maybe I'm just... We're actually running out of a little bit of time. I'm wondering, do you have a favorite... Do you think of a favorite moment on Friday Night Lights? Wow, that's a good question. I'll start with the lighter one. Season two, we were 14 episodes in when the writers voted to go on strike. And we had, I believe, just enough time 
when it actually became formal, you know, the order was for 22 episodes. We were only on episode 14, but we felt like a we had a national writer's strike, not the Friday Night Lights writers. Correct. All, all, all Hollywood all writers. writers went on strike that year. And we said, well, you know, what are we going to do? We had all these plans. It feels like we can't wrap up these stories the way we want to do. And Jason Kadams walked into my office and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do episode 15. You're going to write it. I said, okay, what's the story? And he goes, well, the story is Pete Berg wants to act in it. He has two requirements. One is he wants to be in a helicopter. The other one is he wants to get in a fight with Kyle Chandler. <laughs> so <laughs> those were my marching orders. Go write an episode where Pete Berg's in a helicopter and he fights Kyle Chandler. So we came up with a backstory that Pete was Connie's ex-boyfriend and he showed up and they get in a little argument at this restaurant and they get in this fight. So that was a favorite moment because I, I remember there when they were trying to block that fight and going through all this stuff. And Pete was just basically, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. You do whatever you're going to do because I'm coming for you, man. To me, this one is so bittersweet because I was actually not on the show in season four. That was the year that I went to go do Past Life. But The Sun, the episode with Saracen and his dad, that's just, that's some amazing television. And I think Allison Liddy Brown directed that and that, that episode. And then, like I mentioned before, I mean, just the opportunity to look back at all the amazing people that worked on that show, actors, crew, everybody. I mean, to think Michael B. Jordan coming in and you just knew the first time you saw him, holy cow, this kid is amazing. So those are the moments and the moments, some of the moments were the, shall I say, behind the scenes moments. Spending time with everybody outside of it all, the rap party being the highlight of it all. As you know, we went and played the last football game at Panthers Field. The crew and the cast and all of us went out there after the rap party and played a game. Nam is about to have a heart attack because <laughs> mm-hmm. we, were, we were breaking out all the old uniforms and everything. We can't do this. We can't do this. Yes, Nam we Bernstein was our line producer and the person who made sure the show stayed on budget. She was great. She kept everything uh, on track. It always makes my heart happy to see you and to talk to you. And we need to do um, another Hoot Nanny music night at your house sometime soon. Now that we're yes, we do sort of being public. I feel the same, and I really appreciate you guys asking me to come on. I love your podcast. I think it's great. I think you guys are great. Aren't we all just great? (laughs) Everything's great. Guys, that is it for episode 20. But please join us next time for episode 21 titled Best Laid Plans. But until then, clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mandy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to clearEyesFullHeartsPod at gmail.com. Find us on social media. I'm Stacey Oristano on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Derek Phillips on Twitter and underscore Derek Phillips on Instagram. And check out our websites, clearEyesFullHeartsPod.com, Cadence13.com, and BlackBarrelMedia.com. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week.